Cheerscast is part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Say, look, my name is uh, Lenny Barnes. I'm oh, a hi, Lenny. publicist for the Chamber of Commerce charity softball game this Saturday. I'm looking for Sam Malone. Oh, no, I can tell you right now, Lenny, he wouldn't be interested in that kind of thing. I mean, nobody with any dignity wants to get into those sideshow carnival things where everybody's made to look stupid. Nobody. Hey, aren't you Ernie Pantuzo? I'd be honored to do it. <laughs> well, I don't think we need anybody else. Oh, well. Huh. I find it hard to get up to Fenway these days. Yeah, the old memories come back? Huh? No, I keep getting the wrong bus. I must have an old schedule. <laughs> Wow, I guess those stories about you are true. <laughs> that they are, Lenny. That they are. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see. Our troubles are all the same. Hello and welcome back to Cheerscast, the podcast where everybody knows your name. I'm Ryan Daly, and my guest this episode is making his first appearance on the show. You may know him as the host of 99 Years 100 Films, as well as the X-Files Retrospective Podcast, among other shows. Please welcome Blaine Dollar to the show. What's up, Blaine? Oh, not a lot. Glad to be on here. Been listening since, well, when I found out about you, you had four episodes released, and I've listened in order. Uh, and before we go on, I just want to make one slight adjustment there. I am a co-host of 99 Years 100 Films. Trey Hooks joins me for every episode as well. Just want to make sure Trey gets his due. Will do. Will do. Good luck. Um, I, I, I recommend listening to them in order. Um, it's, well, it's not essential, but it, I definitely think that helps. Uh, we are going to be discussing the Season 3 episode, King of the Hill. But before we get to that, since this is your first time on Cheerscast, I've got to know, what is your Cheers origin story? How and when did you discover the show? I heard about the show long before I watched it. I have vague memories of my aunt and uncle watching it pretty much right from the start, possibly from the pilot, and calling my mom and you know my aunt called my mom there the sisters saying no you guys need to check this out <laughs> so my mom and dad watched it from season one but this series premiered a couple weeks after i turned five okay and i just it, it didn't engage me when it was first on so i didn't actually really get into cheers i think it would have been about season eight would have been the new episodes so it was already running in syndication five days a week and i was maybe 13 at the time flipping through channels and you know there's this show on i didn't recognize but these doors open and five really attractive women come out and as i said i was 13 <laughs> i stuck around for the rest of the episode <laughs> and thought you know what that was actually kind of good and fairly funny and you know those girls were only in it for a little bit maybe they were in it more before i tuned in so as i could do at the time i just changed channel and watched the same episode on another station because <laughs> that's the way the syndication schedules had worked. And yeah, I enjoyed it and pretty soon started watching it live too. So I actually a little different than a lot of, of the, the hosts I've heard or the guests I've heard you bring on before in that because season eight was running new and another station was running, I think it would have been about season six or seven in syndication. I would get familiar with cheers and learn it with, you know, Coach and Diane in one time slot, and then later that same day watch episodes with Woody and Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't have the one I was attached to first. I could kind of see them all coming through together and eventually caught up, especially since I've heard you guys talk in earlier episodes where I guess a lot of the U.S. syndicated stations didn't run the first couple of seasons. And that didn't seem to happen where the Canadian stations were concerned. I have been born and raised in Canada. I'm still in my hometown of Edmonton, Alberta. So it got to the point where I could, I had probably seen most, if not all, the series. I'm rewatching on DVD now. I am near the end of season five, and there's only one episode I haven't recognized. Hmm. And going ahead and reading the descriptions, that may be the only one I missed the first time. Wow. So I think I eventually caught them all, but it's interesting to come back several decades later 
And with the push this podcast gave me to actually break out those DVDs, I got dirt cheap at HMV when I was going into business. <laughs> I'm actually watching it in sequence along with the podcast because yeah. that's how I incentivize myself to watch TV shows now. I've got so many on DVD. If I can't find a podcast that goes through it, <laughs> it's hard to give myself the kick in the pants to pick that show to watch. I'm the sucker. I paid full price for those DVDs when they were coming out, like one year at a time. So No, I paid... 40 bucks Canadian for the first six seasons in one big box nice. at Walmart. And then, uh, yeah, the other seasons I got for 10 or 15 bucks each, depending on what point in the going into business sale it was at when I found them. Yeah, I, and I've I, I took advantage of it, and every once in a while, if I know that they're doing like if I see there's a big sale, even like on the digital, like because I, I ended up getting the entire series on iTunes for about 30 bucks. And just, oh, can't go wrong like, with that. Yeah, and I was like, okay, I'm like now like I'm triple dipping, but for that price for the whole thing, that yeah, no problem. So, uh, well, that's a, that's a great story, and uh, I I love the fact that it was sort of unspoken was that uh, the episode that you were tuning to when the beautiful ladies walk into the bar is the episode that we're going to talk about. So uh, let's get into it. Season three, episode fifteen. King of the Hill, written by Elliot Schoenman, directed by James Burroughs. The original air date was Thursday, January 24th, 1985. The coach and Diane are surprised to learn that Sam has volunteered to pitch in a charity baseball game, until they discover the team he's playing against is comprised of buxom Playboy playmates. During the game, Sam's team dominates the playmates, led by Sam's aggressive pitching performance. After the game, Sam comes back to cheers brimming with pride, but his friends are quick to point out how he missed the spirit of the game by letting his competitiveness spoil the fun for the playmates and the crowd. Diane confronts Sam about his competitiveness, noting how his drive to humiliate the beautiful bunnies cost him his chance to score with any of them after the game. Sam accepts that he has a problem with competition and tells Diane that it goes back to his relationship with his father, for whom nothing Sam did ever seemed to be good enough. Diane can relate and begins telling a story from her own childhood, and then gets mad that Sam isn't paying due attention to her problem. Sam declares that Diane is just as competitive as he is, having to always be right in any situation. To illustrate his point, he goads her into a game of ping-pong. Their competitiveness is so strong that they spend the entire night in the back room playing until after closing time. Finally, Diane convinces him to put down the paddle so they can each walk away without losing. But when he does it, she scores the winning point and declares herself the winner. All right, Blaine, what did you think of King of the Hill? Uh, <laughs> not as a 13-year-old necessarily, but you know, a few, a few decades later. What did you think of it? I think it, it has actually aged fairly well. Some of the, shall we say, gender politics and cheers haven't aged that well. Mm-hmm. Here, Sam is definitely you know, doing the womanizing thing, but this is one of the few chances that we see. You know, he's got an opportunity with a Playboy Playmate you would think that given who Sam is, he would have been all over that. One of my favorite lines is where he asks Becky, my place or yours? She says, I have a roommate. Well, your place it is then. <laughs> right. That's, that is the Sam Malone that we've come to know through the series. But once he gets out on that pitcher's mound, that's forgotten. Mm-hmm. And he is the baseball player. So it, it actually adds another dimension to the character that we didn't get a lot of chance to see. Up until this point, he'd been willing to sacrifice almost anything for one woman or another. So I, I did appreciate this more that I un, now that I understand the bigger picture of the characters and what these choices really meant for Sam. Yeah, this almost kind of because we've I mean there were a few episodes early on where you got a peek into his old baseball career and what you know if he could give an interview you know with Dave or something like that you know talk about it how much that meant to him but now him having actually having the chance to go out there and pitch again and and to like relive that it it sort of creates a kind of tear of the things that are important to him and this one you really get the sense that that baseball thing, that the glory of that, and not just the competition, but the the fulfillment that gave him, is almost kind of more important than. I mean, maybe. Well, I mean, Diane kind of puts it out there that maybe his womanizing and his alcoholism were substitutes for that. 
And, and you're right. I think this episode ages really well until the very ending credits when it goes to the black title card when Sam is chasing her and you actually hear him spank her with the paddle and she shouts, ouch. And um, I was like, oh, that part isn't... Yeah, that's uh, part of the Cheers origin story I didn't get to. There's not this one, but there's another episode coming where the the last line of dialogue in the episode almost put me off Cheers. Mm. Uh, And it was... uh, When it comes, the line was... Thank you for being such a sound sleeper or something. Oh, to that yes. Effect. Oh, I remember that one. Oh, when they're trapped in Robin's hotel or, or apartment. Yeah. <laughs> I remember yeah. that one very well. Yeah. 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 That. Oh, yeah. Of, oh, I, I, I hadn't even thought of that one, but yeah. <laughs> okay. That's. Yeah. That's, that's eight. the last few episodes. <laughs> eight, we're going to have some discussions about that one. Yeah. So um, the last few seconds of that one, and like you're saying, the last few seconds of this, especially that sound over the title card, they haven't aged as, as well as the rest of the episode, but it, it, it does show the depth. And like you said, the previous episodes did show us Sam's glory days with baseball. But I think this is the first time in the series that Sam could choose between women or baseball. Mm-hmm. So this, I think, is like you're saying, this is where they establish the tiers of the hierarchies. Right, right. And almost because it's unconscious. He doesn't even realize like that he's sacrificing one for the other until she has to point it out to him. So well, going going through the episode kind of in order, we start off with the the teaser, very brief. Sam walks into the bar to find a crate of something, and naturally, we don't even see it. This is something that we always get here heard secondhand. But Coach has made another exorbitant purchase for the bar that we know it never goes well. And in this case, it, he got the billiard buddy pool table adapter which can turn the pool table into a ping-pong table, a knock hockey table. He says something else later on, and then a salad bar. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to remember what the other one was. But yeah, yeah, it could be a bunch of different things, and it's... <laughs> and of course, yeah, the, it mentions the salad bar, and, and Sam was like, how much? And of course, Coach, because it's the last thing he mentioned, his first thought is, I don't know, like a dollar, maybe a dollar fifty with croutons. <laughs> Thinking of the price for yeah. what he would charge for a salad. Like, ah, I, they, every time they try to incorporate like selling food, like real food at Cheers, I get I, <laughs> like something about it. So that is not the place where I want to get a meal. <laughs> it's like whether it's Rebecca's no. chili or or a salad bar. It's like no, that's not not appetizing at all. No, but yeah, that that is a, a great teaser, and that's might be better <laughs> a better fit for the discussion later in the episode. But this is one of those cases where the, the Cheers writing staff they seem to really understand. If one particular plot line in the episode, right, if the A plot, so to speak, is really only focusing on one or two of the characters, they clearly put a lot of time and effort into making sure the characters who aren't a big part of the story will have their moments and have spectacular moments. I, I was going to say that because once we get to Norm, who, I mean, all the all the characters except for Sam and Diane are largely forgotten in the second part of the story. Um, but Norm, when he comes in in the beginning of Act 1, it is phenomenal. And we find out that he's he tells them that he had to pick up his mother-in-law from the airport. And he's asking Cliff for advice because she wants to do some, you know, history or tour of American history. Which, in Boston, there is no shortage of places to visit when you're thinking about American history. Uh, and of course, but of course, when he's like, she wants to, like, to see the sights or something. And Cliff's first recommendation is, naturally... Take her to Florida. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then as it builds, we find out that his mother-in-law is asleep under a blanket in the front seat of the car outside. She's still in the car when he comes to cheers. It's like she passed out in the car and he just threw a blanket over and left her a note. And they're like, what? what? And then, of course, he's like, he's like, I'm, I'm going to take care of her and everything. And the guy is like, as he, some one of the other random bar flies is leaving, Norm's like, hey, he hands him like a bowl of like beer nuts or pretzels. He's like, throw these through the window of the blue Civic. <laughs> Yeah, and then when one of the other random barflies comes in, he's like, "Yeah, Norm, they're toying your car." Yeah. Like, did, did you see a woman panicking trying to get out? No. Okay. She's safe. The cops have her. The cops have her. Yeah. yeah the guy Steve is like, "Yeah, you guys, it's like somebody's gonna steal your laundry." He left the doors open. He's like, "That's not my laundry. That's my mother-in-law." Yeah. So I, I just thought in in rapid succession, Norm, who didn't have much else to do throughout the rest of the episode, just like those those quick hits just in the beginning. I mean, Norm almost took my player of the episode, of my MVP for this episode, just because of those jokes. 
Um, that that whole play with his mother-in-law was really, really good. I, I was tempted. If they had sustained that longer in the episode, I probably would have given the MVP to him. But uh, then we get one of our, our, our first guest star for this episode, a guy named Lenny Barnes comes in, played by the actor John Hancock, um, who has appeared in a, a, a ton of stuff. He was in the movie The In-Laws, Airplane 2. He was in a ton of TV shows, including Family Ties, uh, some genre shows that our network loves, like Greatest American Hero. He was in The Incredible Hulk. He was in Star Trek The Next Generation, uh, Hill Street Blues, just a, a ton of stuff like that. Um, and he comes in, and he's telling, he's asking Coach if he can find Sam Malone, and he kind of sets this up that Sam his part of, is volunteered to be part of this charity baseball game. And, and Coach is going through this whole thing. Sam wouldn't be interested in that. You know, nobody with any dignity wants to be out there, you know, sacrificing. He's like, and the guy recognizes, like, aren't you Coach Ernie Pantuso? He's like, I would love to be part of your game. <laughs> oh, yeah, and that's, that's it. Like, I mean, Coach is only really involved in the story until we find out or until Sam gets back. There's his pre-credits teaser. And then it's just him and Diane going, why is Sam involved? He's got that. And then yeah, he's got other great lines. Well, especially when the guy comes in and has, he's not, what can I get for you? It's what can I buy from you? <laughs> Assuming he's a salesman. Yes, of course. Of course. And, and when the guy, the guy's like, I need to make a phone call. He's like, Oh, use the phone. And then like the guy like does a double take. He's like, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, I guess the stories I've heard about you are true. Oh, yeah, all of them. Oh, yeah. Like, yes, because he's like, I find it difficult to get up to Fenway these days. He's like, oh, yeah, a lot of bad memories. And he's like, no, I keep getting on the wrong bus. I think I have an old schedule. And the guy just did it. He's yeah. like, the stories I've heard about you are true. And he's like, yes, they are, Lenny. Yes, they are. Um, And then, oh, or, or, or then there's a great exchange when, um, because Diane and Coach both are kind of on the same wavelength. They're like, "Why? this doesn't make sense. This doesn't sound like Sam. He wouldn't normally do this type of thing, which sets up the mystery of what would provoke him. And that comes with the payoff later on when the playmates walk in. Um, but they're having this thing, and, and uh, Diane is like, you know, I, he, I know how much it meant to him to be standing out there on the bump or something like that. She mis- misuses the word mound, and, and Coach is like, oh, yeah, I miss him on the bump. Incidentally, it's called the mound, unless we're not thinking about the same thing. <laughs> And I love Diane's reaction, just non-verbally, just like, oh, no, of course you're right. You know you know this subject, I don't. Like, like, of course, I'll leave it to Coach to defer to her. It's like, well, Diane's pretty smart. Maybe she knows a word that I don't know. Coach is willing to defer to Diane for just about anything, but, you know, again, <laughs> sports is the one thing that Coach honestly knows better than she does. <laughs> of course, of course, yeah. yeah. yeah and on the, in the pilot, probably alcohol, but she would have learned enough about the drinks to recognize them and make sure that she's handing each drink to the person who ordered it at this point. <laughs> she she certainly knows how long it takes to make a Bloody Mary from scratch after, after one of the previous episodes when she had the bar. Um, uh, so the playmates walk in and of course naturally like everybody's, you know, when the, when the other bar flies see them, you know, they're, you know, I think normal normal clip. One of them actually goes and like does the whole thing. Yeah, I believe that was Norm. Cliff had another just, oh my. <laughs> Norm's like, I can't believe those and Vera are the same species or something, or the same sex, yeah. yeah and even there was that, the third bar fly there who had a, a good line there too, and he's got another good line later when he's going, forget it, I'll just play ping pong. <laughs> God, God bless you, Larry. Yeah, yeah Larry, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, I'm trying to, I, go, I don't remember what the setup is, but like, you know, um, Sam and Diane are talking, and, and you know, of course, she's you know, rolling her eyes and everything about the playmates. And he says, "Who says you can't work for a worthy cause and still be sexually aroused?" And she says, "You could be having an appendectomy and still be sexually aroused." Yep. He's like, "Be that as it may," he you know, he throws it off and everything, and then goes and and he does his interview uh, with the uh, the reporter, which brings us to our our second kind of guest star, notable uh, character actor, David Paymer, is in this episode. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Steven's brother. You know me to see him. I, I mean, I I recognize that guy, David, David Payne, for so many things. He's appeared in some movies that I love, like Quiz Show, Get Shorty, uh, The American President. He's in State and Maine. I, I mean, God, countless things, yeah. Yeah, this is credit number 24 out of 172 for him on the IMDb. <laughs> God, I can't believe 24. He was already doing that much stuff before this, but... Yeah, yeah. yeah his, his first credit was 1979, so. Wow. Oh, well, but I mean, then this was only five years later, so yeah, he, he was still doing plenty of that. 
Yep. And that's even that his 172nd credit is pre-production at the time of recording. So who knows what it's eventually going to top out at. All right. All right. <laughs> and um, he, this is his first of three Cheers appearances, apparently. Yeah. 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 We'll see. Uh, and, uh, and when, when, I mean, you, you kind of brought out like when Sam is doing the whole thing, when he's out there, you know, they're doing a photo shoot with him standing surrounded by, uh, these beautiful playmates and he's kind of flirting with them and doing everything. Like, I mean, he, he's smooth. He's funny. He's got a lot of really good lines that he drops for them. For It's funny. I mean, it's like, this is Sam and his element. You kind of understand, you know, why, why everybody goes for him. And it's just, it's, it's a really good showing. It's not, I mean, the, the fact that, I mean, he is certainly trying to woo them and get them into bed, but I mean, it's, I think he comes off really, really well in this, in this scene, uh, for being this type of character. I mean, it's, it is, I don't think it's necessarily sleazy. I mean, I think it, it, it's forward and it's, it's, um, playful, but it's, it, it, it's also blatantly pickup lines. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's something so uh, sort of obvious about it that it is. Yeah. But I, I think that works for Sam. Right. He, right. he strikes me as the kind of character. I mean, it, it, you mentioned in an earlier episode, you know, when you talked about how, you know, going to bed on the, on the first date means that, you know, there's less chance of commitment. And he says, well, yeah, I'm, I depend on that <laughs> yeah. when he's asked if that's real yeah. to me, that has been Sam. Yeah. Part of the reason he's been with a lot of women, but he doesn't strike me as one of the guys who is, you know, disingenuous. Like the, when he picks up a woman for the night, they know it's probably just the one night. Right. Maybe the booty call. Right. Right. He, he strikes me. His, his whole style is not about, I'm looking for a relationship. It's right. about, right. Well, let's have fun tonight for sure. We'll see about any other nights. Right. right. No and promises. I think there's, there's something very, I think, self-aware about the scene too. Not to say that because they're Playboy, Playboy playmates that obviously they must like having a lot of casual sex. That's not a suggestion. But the fact that he is playing to the audience, he is giving these lines for the reporters. And then in private, he's also just, you know, flirting with them too and kind of making their suggestions. But I think, uh, again, I, I think it's, it's very, because it's so overt and so obvious, it kind it's a little bit disarming and a little bit harmless too. Um, would yeah. be my take. Yeah, um, I would say yeah. that. And before we move on, should we mention the photographer as well? Uh, I don't remember the photographer himself. When I pulled him up on the IMDb on the cast list, I recognized his his insert. I didn't recognize him in the episode. Martin Ferrero is uncredited as the photographer. Really, he is probably best known as the lawyer who gets eaten, eaten in Jurassic, Jurassic Park. Park. Martin Ferrero, yeah, I love that guy. Yeah, he's he's the the photographer in this. IMDb says he is the photographer in this. I didn't even know that or recognize him. I'm going to have to go back and look at that. <laughs> Hey listeners, it's Ryan doing a quick little drop in here. Um, yeah, after after we recorded this episode, I double checked with IMDb, and sure enough, on the cast list for this episode, it says that Martin Ferrero is uncredited as the photographer in the show. But then I went back and rewatched the part of this episode with the photographer included, and that actor is definitely not Martin Ferrero. Um, very strange. I'm not sure where IMDb got that information, but that is a mistake. Martin Ferrero is not the photographer in this episode. However, he will show up at the end of this season in a very, very, very good part. So you have that to look forward to. But anyway, moving on. Okay, because I was going to mention that at least three of the playmates who have have lines are actually given their credits, and they're all actually uh, former playmates of the month. Um, the one uh, named Becky uh, was the uh, the actual uh, woman. whose name is Gina Co Co. I'm not sure. At the time, she was Gina Tomasino. Okay. Or Tomasina. She hadn't been. Yeah, not sure how the name is pronounced. Yeah. Um, she was a playmate of the month, November 1980. Um, she was in Mel, Gib- Mel-, Mel Gibson. She was in Mel Brooks's uh, History of the World Part 1. Mel Gibson's would have been a little bit different movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we saw that, history- didn't we? Yeah, Mel Brooks's History of the World Part 1, and she was in a number of ZZ Top movie- videos. Um, mm-hmm. Ginger, played by Heidi Swordson, also in History of the World Part 1. Uh, she was also in movies Spies Like Us, Rocks and She was in the movie Fright Night. Uh, she was the Playmate of the Month for July 1981. And then, 
Andra, who is the one who told Norm that his car was being told, uh, played by Ola Ray. She was the Playmate of the Month for June 1980. She was Michael Jackson's girlfriend in Thriller. Yeah. She's also in the movies Night Shift, Beverly Hills Cop 2, and 48 Hours. But, uh, yeah, all I could think of was just... <laughs> I could just think of Thriller in the beginning with him turning into the... Not the werewolf, the werecat, but... The uncredited ones... Marcy Hansen is on the IMDb as uncredited, but her credits include playing herself as Miss October 1978 in a 50 Years of Playmates documentary. And the last one is Susie Scott. She plays herself in four different Playboy videos. Hmm. So I don't know if she was you know, Playmate of the Month at any point, but she was also Playmate number two in the Jeffersons and She's got five acting credits, and two of them are as Playmates. One is as Miss Eastern Europe. Nice. Yeah, she was definitely in Playboy videos, so I assume she's in the magazine somewhere. I'm not sure which month. Cliff claims that one of them was Miss February, but Mm -hmm. I don't know if they... They may have scripted that and then just said, you know, later on, which Playmates can we get, and that month didn't necessarily line up. Or maybe Susie Scott is one of the Miss Februarys, because I would think James Burroughs is the kind of director who would pay enough attention when everyone was there. He'd say, okay, was anyone here in Miss February? No, okay, pick a month. Here we go. (laughs) There you go. I I love that when Diane is sort of mocking Sam's interest in the girls, he says, why don't you come over and introduce yourself? I'd like the ladies to know what charity I was involved with last year. And she gives him a look, like... <laughs> like, like if she had a paddle in her hand, she would have come after him at that moment. Yeah, and she had one of her best lines right afterwards. She says, "You can sleep with all five of those women, and I would feel nothing, as I'm sure would they." <laughs> yes, yeah, that was good. I love that. Yeah. Then uh, after the break, like you know, while everybody's away at the game, this is the moment that you, where you mentioned when Coach is there at the bar, and the other barfly Larry comes in and wants to play pool, uh, and back, and it's converted to the ping pong table, and Coach has to take out the blueprints, which is like this architectural size like blueprint sheet that he has to roll across the bar. All sorts of tools, hammers, like guns, like drills, like things that you have no idea. Like, I think something that props department just like soldered two things together to make it look like a tool. <laughs> like, just. Yeah, I think at one point they, they glued something on a toilet brush as well. <laughs> yes. What the heck is that? Um, and, and yeah, he's like, all right, well, it'll be about 20 minutes. And he's like, 20 minutes to, before I can play pool? He's like, no, 20 minutes for me to pull, figure out what this thing is. And he holds up that toilet brush thing, whatever it is. And that's when. Larry's just like, you know what, forget it, I'll just pay ping pong. And Coach is still just looking at the blueprints going, God bless you for that. He's like, he knows, he knows. When Sam comes back and he's like feeling proud that his team shut them out, that didn't let anyone pass first base, he says, Diane like clangs a glass to try and like speak and everything and like point out that the game was for the fans who wanted to see the ladies wiggle their heinies. I love, Sam says, Diane, you're the last person I want to hear from right now. You're not exactly in the top five any day. And he makes the point yeah. that people paid good money to watch Sam Malone pitch, and Norm's comeback is, I paid for high knees. <laughs> so. mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, and Cliff was, like, nodding and pointing his finger in the air like, me too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, Carla is like, you know, Sam, I loved seeing you out there, but even I was a little embarrassed when you hit Babette in the head, when you knocked Babette in the head for crowding, the, for crowding home plate. And he has to defend it, and he, like, defends it to coach, everything like that. It's like, he, oh my, like, that's when you're kind of like, all right, this is ridiculous. He he threw a ball at one of the playmates because she was crowding home plate. That's when you're like, this is not normal behavior. No, and I really have to give a lot of credit to Ted Danson in this scene for his acting. Mm-hmm. People think of acting, you know, delivering the lines and hitting the marks. But at this point, he has grown so much as an actor. You can compare him to season one and see how much he's changed. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that really struck me is when he realized everyone was against him and he, you know, he, at one point he puts his hand on the office door and then comes back to try and defend himself. And you could hear his agitation and frustration in just the way he breathes. Mm-hmm. Like he changed his breathing rhythms and that said so much. Yeah. He just, you could hear him breathing on microphone and that told you everything you need to know about the way he was feeling right now, where there's that agitation, you know, He's trying to convince them that he's right because, but he's mostly trying to convince himself because he knows they're right. Right, right. He yeah. Doesn't want to admit it. Yeah, when he when he lashes out at them, and it's it's a great it's a great setup, uh, and it's like great by everybody because Diane says, you know, I, I think you're ready to take on the Campfire Girls All Stars, 
and Norm and Cliff even laugh at that. And like, I think Cliff is like, that's a good one or whatever like that. They're, they're even like, yeah, Diana's right here. And that's when he's like, any of you want to like, like take me, like think you can hit a pitch, hit one of my pitches or something like that. He's like really lashing out at them. And that's when he has to like kind of storm off your, you're right. He like really, I think even more so than when he was drunk, when he relapsed in the beginning of the season, this is where you see like this ugly side of him where he can really get angry and belligerent and unlikable. That's when Diane chases him back there. And she's like, you in the, in the pool room, which is now the ping pong room. But she's like, you're a great guy. You've got a lot of friends. People love you, but you've got this one flaw. And he's like, gee, I wonder if I can coax you into telling me what it is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when she she calls him on his competitiveness and everything, and like she brings it up that that the whole thing where this cost him his opportunity to score with the ladies. She's like, and she the, the phrasing is, "You wanted to beat them more than you wanted to bed them," and he's reluctant at first to say, you know, he's because he he's defending himself. He's like, competitive isn't you know a bad thing; it's healthy. And she's like, but you're not just a little bit competitive, and she has to throw it back. Um, this scene, this back and forth between them, when it's not about their romance or their relationship, it's not about their sexual chemistry, it's about pointing, digging at each other a little bit, challenging each other. This reminded me of a season one episode, like the kind of fights they would have in season one, when there was that sexual tension, there was that, that little hint of something going on, but it wasn't about, you know... It like it wasn't hanging over the head the fact that are they lovers or not or something like that. Like this was about other aspects of their character, and I just I really just relished every moment of this scene, and it brought me back to some of their early scenes in season one that I loved. Yeah, it really played off well. That's one of the things I found. I mean, it got great exchange, like you said, when he was talking about his relationship with his dad. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that this showcases nicely is that they do understand each other. But their relationship is not a healthy one, <laughs> right? Right. And that's built into the DNA of the show. Because if it was, if it was going to be a healthy relationship, then the will they, won't they? How do they get together? It's hard to stretch that out, right? right. The fact that they are actually not good for each other makes like the breakups and the getting back together and then breaking up that cycle works well. Mm-hmm. When he starts talking about his dad, she actually says, you know, I, I've never been able to relate to you on this level. She can't wait to start telling her own story. Like, she's bringing him back to herself right away. And, mm-hmm. like, he's he's not past it. And then this is going to lead, it's like, of course you two. You have to one-up each other with who's, you know, who's childhood trauma was, has had a, like a more lasting damaging effect on their life and everything like that you're going to make your pain has to be worse than the other person's pain I, I love it when he's talking about his dad he's like how he, he says you know his his parents were hard on him nothing he ever did was good enough and he said if I got a C in school they said why didn't you get a B if I got a B they said why didn't you get an A <laughs> Diane asks she's like, and if you got an A and he gives her this look like what <laughs> Yeah, and she apologizes, which... <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's like, I'm sorry, I forgot who I was talking to. <laughs> yeah, and all, although I have to admit, my gut instinct when I heard that line was, he didn't get letter grades in phys ed. <laughs> good, good point. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, yeah, this is Sam Malone, and phys ed, he should have had an A, but only phys ed. Yes, I mean, have they said... I don't remember when it if it's come up yet or if it comes up in the future, but I think he goes... He went right into the minor leagues or a farm team out of high school. I think that I uh, I don't remember what episode it comes up, but I'm pretty sure they they established like that he went he out of high school he went into a, like a farm league, so he was already a great athlete and a great baseball player then. So um, yeah, and at, of course at that point that's where they start arguing about who is more competitive <laughs> and decide to settle it with a game of ping pong. Right, and it's not so much that they decide to settle it is. Sam proposes they settle it that way, and Diane keeps trying to be the bigger person and walk away, but Sam just bats the ball to her and makes the chicken noises until she finally relents. Which I actually found to be kind of a a callback to their breakup at the end of season two, when she turned her back to him, and she was go, like going to go out the door and everything, and he's like, no, I, he wanted her to fight. He wanted them to have that argument, and she didn't want to. So he was standing behind her, like like making like chicken like faces and everything like that, like like you know hooking his his like his cheek or something like that, sticking his tongue out, doing all those childish things to goad her until she exploded. So 
I think he kind of has her number. Like, you know, like he can he can keep doing this. He can keep throwing that ping pong ball at her, and eventually she'll pick it up and start playing with him. Um, and he she probably does. thinks, yeah, he, he probably assumes that she's not. A, she can't play ping pong. He's gonna he's gonna kill her in this game. And then her response actually is probably my home run for the episode. So I'll save that little part. But uh, yeah, she goes back at him, and she's she's good. And they. They play throughout the night, and we actually get this little transitional sort of semi-montage thing where it cuts back to the bar, and Coach and Carla are manning the bar, and Norman Cliff are at their spots, and we get like three little short transitions after a couple of seconds, three stages throughout the night, which is nice because it knocks up a few more beers for Norm every time he did that. Um, yeah, just a few dissolves to say, time is elapsing, Yeah, they're, like, they're still playing. The, the one point, it's like... There's like a really subtle you can barely hear, but Cliff is saying something like, "After that, I never feared death" or something like that. Like whatever story they were coming from. Yeah, and when it ends, it's Cliff and Norm at the bar, but Carla and Coach have gone home. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. these two are the last ones there, except for Sam and Diane in the back. Yeah. So who knows how many beers they served themselves while they were unsupervised? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And then, yeah, that brings us once Diane is able to convince Sam, just put the paddle down, we'll walk away, let's not, let, let's let's both be bigger than this. And then as soon as he gets out of range of the table, she smacks the winning thing down, and, and she has to win, which... She claims it's a win, but her ping pong ball hit the table three times, so I don't think that actually counts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. Um, and I, I was trying to say, it's such a... Such a nasty and cheap and childish thing to do, but I was like, Diana's done stuff like that before. Like in the Fortune Men's Weight episode when she convinced Sam not to break up with her and he hugged her and said, We're not broken up and then she's and then she goes, Then I'm first. I break up with you. Like she's done it. Like she's this is in character for her. Like she had to to do that. It is, and that is probably one of the defining elements of the relationship. When I say they're not healthy for each other, I mean they don't do anything purely to make the other person happy very often. They'll do it sometimes, but mostly it's right, there's almost nothing altruistic. And given the opportunity, they would rather push each other's buttons and upset the other person than make them happy, especially yeah. right now when they're not officially a couple. Yeah, yeah. And they, they know each other well enough because of their year of intimacy and, and together that they know exactly which buttons. They, they have a read on, on each other. Um, and then, yeah, it, it's all, after that, Sam chases her and he says, you're not getting out of here alive. And, and we just hear the, the smack with the paddle and, and, and uh, it's, that's the part that's okay. I wish, I wish you would have ended a few seconds earlier. Um, but yeah, but if, People at home, if you haven't watched it yet, just mute it as soon as it cuts to black. <laughs> yeah, once it goes to black, just pretend the episode is over. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, this was an episode I had kind of forgotten about. Like, this isn't one, like, at the beginning of the season, I'm like, King of the Hill, what, what, what is that one about? I don't remember. Like, this one didn't stay. But as I was watching it, I was like, this is a really good episode. This is a really strong one for the season because the first act is dominated by a lot of jokes between Coach and Norm. Even Carla talking, like her brief little thing about, you know, catching the pitches for Sam when she's pregnant. We newly found out that she's pregnant. And, and Diane's like, I don't think you should be doing that when you're with child. And she's like, if I never did anything with child, I wouldn't do anything at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah, or later when... Again, Cliff is talking about Florida and says, do you know how they treat solid waste? And <laughs> yeah. she says, you said they treated you pretty well. Like, that was such a good line. <laughs> it is. And that, it made it really hard for me to, to pick the MVP of the week just because the, the one-liners are firing on all cylinders here. And everybody mm. has just great content. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, you know, all, the, all those supporting characters. That, that, that was another thing that remi- made me reminded me of season one. Because it's so Sam and Diane heavy, but mm-hmm. all of the supporting players get their good little moments and get great dialogue. The first half is really funny, and then the second half, it's just all them, like, and they're back and forth in their relationship, and it's great material. You get a lot of great character-defining stuff, dramatic stuff from Sam especially, 
learning about his his history and his childhood uh, and the, these things that kind of inform his character, not just like his competitiveness, but possibly fusing into his alcoholism and his womanizing and, and this little picture that we get of him and the way Ted Danson plays it. It's really, really good stuff. So uh, between the comedy in the beginning and the drama at the end, this is a really strong episode that I kind of forgot about. So, uh, yeah, I, I had a blast watching this one. It's nice because some of the early episodes don't hold up as well. In particular, season one, some of them, they're just still trying to figure out you know, what they could do with the camera work and what the cast is capable of. So it's, you, you've said in the past, and absolutely rightly so, this goes from pilot to comfortable much faster than most shows. Mm-hmm. I think the only thing that had the typical length of learning curve would be the character of Carla. Yeah, I, I yeah. remember noting that at first. Like, it took seven or eight episodes before we kind of got the shades of who Carla would be later on in the season. And even then, there's still there's still some growth before she kind of settles into the acidic personality that she the, the acidic humor that she has. But uh, yeah, but other than that, it's it's pretty it's pretty seamless. So, uh, getting into the superlative categories for Norm's head because we have that little transitional phase at the at the end with all of those little cutaways. Uh, I gave him six beers for this episode, uh, which brings him up to 243 for the series up to now. For the employee of the week, I, I telegraphed that I almost gave it to Norm just because of all the jokes about his, his mother-in-law at the beginning and how funny that was. Um, and I could make a case for, for Coach 2, but this was just such a Sam-heavy episode. And you, like you rightly pointed out, Sam's performance... From the photo, from the photo op thing, when he's got his arms around the girls and he's making the jokes about, he's like, "I'm really looking forward to the game, and I'm really looking forward to the shower afterwards," um, and just playing that that interplay, that Sam in the element that you really think of him as. And then when he comes back, when he's when he's turning on his friends and the customers who think they've turned on him, and you're right, and like his his pitch and his delivery changes to then when he's in the back talking to Diane about his family. Like I, I mean, yeah, I, I definitely think Sam was the employee of the week for this one what about you yeah he's my pick as well but it was tough norm was in the running carla was in the running diane was in the running which surprised me because honestly i've never been a huge fan of diane i've softened to her much more as an adult because i realized the issue is it's not surely long it's that diane is not the kind of person i would like to spend time with (laughs) like i just would have zero patience for her in real life so, you know, I, I kind of preferred the Rebecca years because I dislike Diane as a person, which says a lot about Shelley Long because that's her performance bringing that out. It, it's not that I dislike Shelley Long. Shelley Long is perfectly playing a character that is written to be a character I wouldn't like. I think early on in the first season, especially. Diane is, I think, more than anything, Diane is our POV character. She's the outsider bringing us into this world and kind of seeing it through her eyes and her for early experiences. We're kind of she's guiding us into this world. But I think after that, we get comfortable in this world really quick. We get happy and content at shows. We like sidling up to the bar and hanging out with Norman Cliff and bantering with Sam and Coach and Woody and Fraser and all those guys. And all of a sudden. You look around and it's like, I like them a lot more than I like Diane. And it, she remains the outsider throughout her tenure. She never really like clicks all the way with the rest of the group. And because of that, by the time she leaves, it kind of felt like she had worn out her welcome by a few seasons. And there's going to be more to talk about that as, it, as we go to season four and five. But I actually would say that Shelley Long's departure, if she had not chosen to leave... I don't think Cheers would have made it to 11 seasons. Her departure forced them to go in new directions that I think prevented stagnancy. I, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah I, well, yeah, I'll, I'll save some my, more of my thoughts on that once we get to, like, season five, especially, like, with her with her final yeah. years. But, yeah, great. It is, because, I, and, I mean, the way I came into it, I was really, five days a week, I was alternating between seasons three and six. Mm-hmm. And then when they had the new episodes, I was jumping to season eight. Yeah. At that point, Diane was no longer the point of view character. Right. That wasn't her role on screen because they assume you're familiar with the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, if anything, if I felt there was a point of view character on screen, for me, it would have been more Fraser than anyone else because I was kind of the, the nerdy kid who was generally respected but not always liked. But 
you know, if classmates had questions, I was usually the guy they came to. So I, I saw more of myself in Frasier than anyone else on the show. I think the fact that he sticks around accelerates her departure or the, the fact that she seems more, even more out of place in the world. The fact that Frasier can so seamlessly integrate and is also available for the kind of jokes and more of the highbrow elements that she would normally get. Uh, you, you can do with him in a way that feels, I don't, I don't know, more fun. Anyway. Um, yeah, he, he can actually, he feels like he belongs in both worlds. Mm-hmm. And she's perpetually the outsider. Yeah. Because that's what they needed her character to be to make it work. Whereas Frazier, like you said, he could walk that line. And you put it next to Diane, and then he's the outsider again when he's with her. But then he could just as easily step in. And if people were making fun of Diane, he can step in with Carla and Cliff and Norm and fire the same barbs. Uh, getting to favorite jokes from this episode or, or, or moments, uh, what did you think was the home run for this one? Um, the one that uh, hit me the most, I, I thought it was funny this time, and partly because of how I reacted to it watching it as a 13-year-old boy where it opened my eyes to a whole new world was when she says, I have a roommate, and Sam says, okay, your place. <laughs> yeah, and it's there's a huge number of lines that are contenders in this one. Mm-hmm. It is a very strong episode for the one-liners. Yeah. So I, I, I let the 13-year-old version of me break that tie. They were, they were, I had a couple of runners-up. One of the runners-up was actually going back to the teaser uh, when Coach is talking about like the, the pool table adapter and everything that he got from the guy. And he said, the salesman said, satisfaction guaranteed. And Sam goes, or? And Coach goes, that would have been a good question to ask. Like, yeah. I that. Um, another runner-up. I just I liked Sam's whole story about making breakfast more for the dramatic part of it more than the humor. Um, just like his performance as he's delivering that. But I think my my favorite parts of this are the final digs that that Diane and Sam are giving to each other when she picks up the paddle and she's getting ready and she says, "My father built me an elaborate rec room when I was a child." And she just gives him this smile and she goes, "My daddy liked me." And the, the audience is all like, even like, whoa. And then Sam is like, yeah, I bet you got a lot of practice staying home from all those proms. <laughs> and yeah. just between those two things, I was like, those are good. Those are the, yeah, the, these are the characters who know how to dig each other more than anything. So, yeah, they know how to hurt each other. They know how to please each other, but they choose to hurt. Mm-hmm. Well, um, Blaine, thank you very much for being on this episode of Cheers Cast. Um, I, I know we've already got a season four episode scheduled for you to come back to. Um, but until we get to then, where else can people find you on the podcastosphere? Oh, well, like you said, the, the two main shows that I have right now are 99 Years 100 Films, where Trey Hooks and I sit down once a month and discuss movies that won Best Picture in order of release. And we do it by ceremony. So the reason there's 99 years of 100 films is that one year actually had two winners. So that's one podcast. I also host the X-Files Retrospective podcast. And I've got a couple of others, including an old-time radio podcast, which has gone through every episode of Dimension X and X-1. And I'm seriously considering going into Duffy's Tavern as one of the other shows, which may be of interest to Cheers fans. Can you set that up, what that was? just uh, You mentioned that before. For anybody who doesn't know it, what was Duffy's Tavern? Uh, Duffy's Tavern started as a radio show that jumped from network to network and eventually became a movie. Uh, so far, I've only heard the audition. The most notable thing about it right now is that it was created by Abe Burroughs. That's James Burroughs' father. Mm-hmm. It's a half-hour comedy set in a bar. Actually, it's called Duffy's Tavern. You never meet Duffy. You just hear the host, Archie. He's the bartender who will answer the phone and talk to, to Duffy. But he always answers the phones, Duffy's Tavern, where the elite meet to eat. <laughs> and then, so that's clearly referenced on The Simpsons, too, where most tavern where the elite meet to drink <laughs> is a reference to Duffy's Tavern. They finish the reference with Duff Beer. <laughs> so far, I've only listened to the audition tape, which is interesting. It's kind of a semi-variety show. So there's a vaudeville style to the comedy, where there's... You know, set up punchline, set up punchline, set up punchline. But in that episode, they were looking for a new Irish tenor. So they had a bunch of musical numbers interspersed. And apparently one of the things that made it big is the guest stars. Yeah, yeah, that's what I had heard about. Like tons 
of famous guest stars from this time. Uh, Alan Ladd, Boris Karloff, um, uh, Bing Crosby, I think, was on an episode. Bob Hope. Ton- Lucille yeah. Ball, I think, was on the show. Uh, just uh, tons of people from this era. Yeah, and looking... You know, a lot of those were in the, the movie version. Mm-hmm. I've got the Wikipedia open for it right now. The guest stars that it had on the radio version include... Fred Allen, Vincent Price, Mel Allen, Lucille Ball, Joan Bennett, Nigel Bruce, Billy Burke, Bing Crosby, Gracie Fields, Susan Hayward, Bob Hope, Lena Horne, Boris Karloff, Alan Ladd, Veronica Lake, Peter Lorre, Tony Martin, Mary McDonald, Gene Tierney, Arthur Treacher, and Shelley Winters. <laughs> so, yeah, it is interesting. I just That's a murderer's row of guest stars. <laughs> it is, yeah. So I just have to yeah. see how it pans out. But it's been two years on CBS, three years on NBC, and yeah, rap went from 1941 to 1951. But yeah, sitcom set in a tavern by Abe Burroughs. <laughs> go figure, go figure. Wonder if yeah, that was uh, any input into the the development and the craft of of Cheers because you know at one point it was going to be a hotel bar, like it was basically going to be like a they had in mind it like a, an American Faulty Towers type of thing, uh, and then they changed it and yeah so. That's good, because Faulty Towers is excellent, but it's also very British. Yes, <laughs> I would agree I, with that. It, I, I, I love the show, but it, it, is, it is of its place. It, yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I don't think it would translate well, and part of that is because it's not so loosely based on one of the hotels that they actually stayed in when they were making Monty Python. <laughs> nice, nice. So. All right, well, thank you very much for being on this episode. Uh, I had a lot of fun talking to you about this one. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Thanks to all of you out there who listen to Cheerscast and support the show by liking and sharing on Facebook, favoriting and retweeting on Twitter, and leaving a comment on the website, which you can find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. You can also support the Fire and Water Podcast Network on Patreon. Special thanks to Mike Gillis from Radio vs. the Martians, Rick from Jeff and Rick Presents, Unpacking the Power of the Power Pack, and Ashford Wright from the Right On Network, who sponsor this show. For more information on how you can support your favorite show on the Fire and Water Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and until next time, we're closed. Want to play ping pong? Of course I don't want to play ping pong. It's preposterous. It's not exactly my best sport. A lot of people beat me at it, but I bet you I could beat the pants off of you. And what if you did? What would it prove? Well, it prove I'm having a great day, my dad was wrong, God's in his heaven, and you are a loser. Oh, as always, you are just trying to avoid the central issue here. Come on, chicken. (laughs) Don't do this, Sam. I've played ping pong. My father built me an elaborate rec room when I was a child. My daddy liked me. Yeah. Yeah. I bet you got lots of practice staying home from all those proms, huh?